3: I'm your host, Jane Simecka, Professor of History at Brookdale Community College. Today, we'll be talking to Joan Marie Johnson about her book, Funding Feminism, Moneyed Women, Philanthropy, and the Women's Movement, 1870 to 1967, published by University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Johnson,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure. And I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh, I've been teaching and writing about women and gender for about 25 years. And a lot of my previous work was on uh, black and white women's clubs, social reform, um, education for women. And what I really was, um, have always been interested in studying is why women um, wanted to expand their opportunities, what feminism really meant to them. Um, because feminism uh, means different things to different people. And so it's been really fascinating to me to understand how different kinds of women uh, with different ideas coalesce around um, the need to expand their opportunities and seeking equality. Oh,
3: that's great. So, So how did you come to write Funding Feminism?
1: So when I was writing about um, women's clubs and and, uh, women in higher education, I would always sort of skip and I'd be in the archives, you know, rooting through dusty old boxes. And I would always skip the ones that said finances. (laughs) I figured I don't need to know about that. I'm focused on why they, you know, believe what they believe and what they're trying to accomplish. But I had a kind of a light bulb moment where I realized um, that I was really missing a lot of the how. How did they actually accomplish it if I didn't look into, if I didn't follow the money and look into um, the finances behind a lot of women's activism in this time period. Um, And I was influenced in part by reading some biographies of Chicago women and just noting one after another how some of these very powerful women um, you know, uh, had a fortune that paid for their um, social work. So for example, Jane Adams, the founder of Whole House, the first social um, settlement house in the United States. she had her own money which she brought to, to help open the house. and then she had um, her partner and another donor from um, Chicago, two very wealthy women who gave hundreds of thousands of dollars and really, Um, Pay for, made possible, um, whole house. And and we don't always think about that. So um, I started to think about what women were funding and why um, and how they did it. So
3: why do you think wealthy women donated money to women's causes specifically instead of just, you know, poverty and other charity work?
1: So that's a really interesting question. Um, And I guess I have a lot of answers to it. But I would say the first answer is um, most women in this time period, so late 19th, early 20th centuries, um, weren't actually in charge of their charitable donations if they were married women, right? Their husbands were. Um, So most women were not able to make these decisions. But most of the women in the book are um, either widowed um or they're single women and so they do have access to their own fortune and can spend it uh, however they like and in fact a lot of women do give to the charities you're mentioning you know they are funding hospitals they are giving a lot to their churches they're giving to um, men's colleges right in honor of their sons or their husbands um, so so a lot of Uh, very wealthy women in this time period who did have access to funding were um, funding all sorts of charities. But I discovered that there's this amazing cohort of women who did give to feminist causes, who were really interested in um, supporting um, the expansion of rights for women. And essentially, the reason that they did it was because despite their privilege, I mean, these are white women Um, they're very wealthy, they're very privileged, and yet they still experience sexism. So for example, their father allows their brothers to go to college, but won't allow them to go to college. They can't access the money, the husband or the brother uh, is controlling their money. Um, There's a famous quote from a story about Jane Stanford, the founder of Stanford University, along with her husband. Um, After her husband died, she inherited all of his um, estate. And he had been head of a railroad company. And she was interested in suffrage and was talking to Susan B. Anthony and was trying to get railroad passes from the railroad that her husband had led. And she couldn't get them herself. And she had to ask her brother to intervene and get them. And she told Susan B. Anthony, it's because I'm a woman. If I were a man, if I wore pants and had the right to vote, this wouldn't happen. So I think what we see happening is that these very wealthy women, despite their privilege, are experiencing sexism and they begin to think about how they can um, do something about that.
3: Yeah. So that's really like a different kind of activism, isn't it?
1: It is a different kind of activism. And, you know, as I'll talk about um, and share some stories, there there certainly are some problems when, you know, folks use money as a form of activism. But on the other hand, um, you know, that activism has to be funded somehow, right? You know, if you're going to have an office and a staff where you're going to, have mailings, or you're going to have a parade. All of these things cost money, and you know if you think about just the um, the ways in which grassroots donations are really important. Um, and I would never dismiss them. But on the other hand, you know you can try to raise um, twenty five dollars from a million women, right? Or you can get one woman to just give that all at once, and that can have a really powerful effect. Um, I think today more women have access to more of their own money and decisions about finances. And so it's easier today to do that kind of grassroots organizing. And I know, for example, you know, when the women's March first marched four years ago now, I guess, um, they did an online campaign and got, you know, millions of donations, and that was really um, important and easier today than I think it was in this time period um, where uh, women had less access to funding.
3: Right. It's like the confidence and the network, right. You know, the confidence that maybe today there's more confidence about knowing and being able to write that check um, and to, and to have the connections either if it's through social media or whatever there, there's, Better networks of fundraising and connectiveness between, yeah. I think social
1: media really makes a difference because you know Susie Anthony and other um, women in this time period—they're writing thousands of letters a year. You know, they're just every day they're sitting down to write and. Um, they're spending, you know, an inordinate amount of time fundraising, right? And the way that they're fundraising really is just writing these letters, asking for donations and, and, uh, and talking to people when they meet them in person. And it was, um, it was, a, it was difficult work. Um,
3: so. And they were very persistent. I noticed that in a couple of the chapters yes. too, like, the persi- <laughs> you know, even if they're turned down, they, they write another one, letter. Uh, even if they kind of get brushed off, a little bit uh-huh. um like thank you for the 25 dollars but um hey <laughs> <laughs> what about what about this uh this seems like something we really love to work with you on you know so i i was very impressed with how persistent some of these movements were uh at continuing to ask keep asking yes, that seemed to be one absolutely. of the that was like one of the, one of the lessons of good fundraising is don't get, dis- don't get discouraged if you get turned down the first time.
1: <laughs> and ask for more, ask Absolutely. for bigger gifts.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. So what do you think, uh, what did you discover about the impact of these wealthy women donors on the women's movement?
1: So in the book, um, when I'm talking about the women's movement, I sort of had to, refine it, you know, to, to be able to think about what I wanted to cover in the book. So I cover women's, the women's suffrage movement, the expansion of higher education, access to higher education for women, uh, support for women in the labor movement and uh, what was then called the birth control movement or reproductive rights. And I think there's kind of two major themes that, that, that go throughout the book. Um, And the first is really that it was women making change for women. And that sounds kind of obvious, um, but I think it's really essential to think about how um, for the suffrage movement, for example, it's really women who are giving. Um, When you look at the lists of donors and the national women's party kept a book of over 200 pages and they listed every single donation that they got from 50 cents you know, up to tens of thousands of dollars. Um, And they're all women and, you know, overwhelmingly women. And women are giving those small amounts and they're giving the big amounts. Um, There are few men who give. The men are usually their husbands or their fathers or their sons or their brothers. So clearly it's women's activism um, that brings men into support more rights for women. So I think that is important for us today to think about how women's activism is what will bring men into the movement. It's what brings allies. Um, it's really how we create allies in the movement. Um, and women really had to give in order to convince men to give. So I think um, that's really important that they're they're making change for themselves. Um, and then the other uh, major theme throughout the book is that. Their giving had an enormous impact on the movement, and I'll talk about some of the ways. Um, you know, in particular, the things that they funded and the way they enabled new tactics, new strategies, um, the institutions that they built really just um, incredibly impactful. But they also caused problems, wasn't always easy having uh, these wealthy donors because the wealthy donors sometimes you know, had a mind of their own. And sometimes you might be fortunate and get a, um, a bequest without any strings on it and you could spend it however you wanted. Or you might get even an anonymous donation or a quiet donation. And you, as a officer in one of these associations or a member of the movement, you could spend it how you wanted. But there were also a lot of wealthy women who had their own ideas about, but they they were active they weren't just writing checks and that didn't always sit very well because it seemed people were generally not very comfortable with women and po- and money and power to begin with and so having women really dictate with their dollars where they wanted headquarters to be or who they wanted to hold office or um what newspaper they should have and what it should say that really uh, caused a lot of problems within the movement. And when those women um, who were basically all white women, these wealthy donors, um, when they themselves also were not inclusive when it came to working across class divisions, working across race divisions, working with women of color um, that really exacerbates it as well. So, um, I definitely deal with uh, what happens when you have inequality in a movement for equality.
3: Right. So how did these themes play out in the women's suffrage movement?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And I spend the beginning of the book on the suffrage movement and I, I'll talk about two women in particular because they were just so impactful, um, the first is Miriam uh, Leslie, Miriam Foline Leslie, Mrs. Frank Leslie. Her husband had, well, her third, second, she had several husbands. She had several affairs. She, she had a very colorful uh, personal life, but she was also a very astute uh, businesswoman. And her husband had was a publisher. He published, you know, uh, Frank Leslie's Monthly Magazine and a a, a host of other magazines. And when he died, he left his business to her. She changed her name to Frank Leslie. So I refer to her as Mrs. Frank Leslie. And she revived his uh, publications because they were actually sinking. And she made quite a bit of money. And she was giving basically $100 annually to the suffrage movement. So, you know, she was a consistent donor. Gave, you know, a nice amount, but never was out there in the streets making speeches or anything like that. And then when she died, she left her entire estate to Carrie Chapman Catt, who was then coming into the presidency of NASA, which was the national organization at the time. And so um, the estate was one point seven million dollars. By the time they paid the lawyers off because her relatives were all suing and paid some taxes et cetera, they, uh, Chapman cat came out with just under, uh, $1 million. So that was the biggest donation to the movement. And when you think about it, the entire budget for, uh, the national organization, the year before the donation was $38,000. So your whole budget is $38,000 and now you have a million dollars at your disposal. I mean, just think of what y- you can do, right? It's kind of amazing. And so the two main areas that Kat spent most of the money on was um, the first of all, she hired 25 professional public relations um, employees, staff, all women, and they sent out everything all over the country from articles to cartoons to silent films. Um, they even had a, um, a stunts division where, you know, if you were having a parade, they might send you a car or something to help you out. Um, so they really did a massive, edu- Carrie Chapman Cat called it an education campaign. It was really, if we're going to get men to vote for women, how are we going to do it? We have to change their minds. So we really need this massive public relations campaign. And as part of that, she even bought up um the Woman's Journal, which was the newspaper that uh, was well in debt, and they spent tens of thousands of dollars on it. It was really um, important to them to be able to control their own message, to put out their own message about what it was they wanted and who they were. So that was really important. She also paid for um, the new headquarters in Washington, D.C., because at that time, Um, the national organization had really been focusing on a state-by-state campaign. So trying to change the laws in each state. And in that last period before the 19th Amendment was passed, they began to focus more on passing a federal amendment. Um, And so they needed to have headquarters in Washington, D.C., and it cost them $25,000 to do it. And so they had the money Um, to be able to do it. So that was really important. So I think she's someone who was enormously impactful. And again, one of those um, uh, donors who gave everything was completely unrestricted, spend it as you want. Um, And I'll contrast her with Alva Vanderbilt Belmont, who uh, had a different approach, but was equally influential in the movement. She was originally from Alabama and she married Willie Vanderbilt, who was the grandson of the Commodore, the the railroad tycoon um, who made all the money. And um, and then they divorced. He was cheating on her. And she felt like, again, you know, that sort of here she is, this extraordinarily wealthy white woman. um, And yet her husband's cheating on her. And she really felt like what could she do, right? He could get away with that and she didn't have a lot of options. But she does, in the end, divorce him. Um, She remarries and then after her second husband dies, uh, she has all this money and she gets involved in the suffrage movement. Um, And one of the first things she does is at the time, NASA's headquarters was in Warren, Ohio, small town in, in Ohio. It was basically the desk of the treasurer who lived in Warren, Ohio. And so here's Alva Vanderbilt Belmont, you know, this New York socialite who really basically turned her nose up at the idea of having this desk in Warren, Ohio, be the headquarters for the national organization. And, you know, she was right. The nation and the media took the movement a little more seriously when they were headquartered in New York and they could really garner the New York press. and uh, get more attention that way. So she offered them $7,000, but only if they would move the headquarters to New York. So she put that condition on it. Well, not surprisingly, within a couple of years, the treasurer in Warren, Ohio, (laughs) had resigned. um, And there was a lot of infighting at the headquarters. And basically, there were just a lot of other officers who felt that Belmont, was, um, you know, was dictating with her dollars that she was buying power in the movement, that whatever she wanted, she would just threaten to either withhold her funding or only give it if she got X. Um, And that seemed to be problematic. Um, The other thing that is really important, I think, about Belmont and understanding the role of these philanthropists in the women's movement is that she comes to feminism, again, you know, she's angry at her husband. um, And so she feels like women are subject to the abuse of men, whether it's, you know, your wealthy cheating husband, or if you're a working class woman, your abusive boss, right? That women really need the vote in order to have respect in society, and, um, and economic power, um, so that they will be treated better. And so she gets involved, as as other wealthy women did at the time, in supporting the women's shirtwaist strike in New York City in 1909, early 1910. Um, And from Belmont's perspective, you know, she had a lot in common, she thought, with these women who were immigrant um, garment factory workers. And so she tries to cross this divide. And then she also opens a branch of her organization. Um, She invites several black leaders of um, a black um, suffrage club in New York to open a branch in Manhattan of her organization and she'll pay for the headquarters. And so you see her trying to reach out and cross divides, race, class, and kind of imagine this sisterhood of women, right, who all have something in common. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't really last. Um, a lot of the working class women resented uh, her and some other women, you know, kind of said, we were suffragists beforehand, we didn't need them to come in here and tell us what to do. So there is tension there. Um, Black women, before they accept her support and and, uh, form the branch of her organization, specifically ask her, Irene Mormon asks her, you know, are you really for all women getting the right to vote? And if if we get the right, if women get the right to vote, are Black women going to be included or are we going to be excluded the way that Black men in the South have been excluded from voting and disenfranchised? And um, Belmont reassures her, "Oh no, no, this is for everyone. You know, unless we we give the right to vote to everyone across race, you know, it won't mean anything." And then, within a couple of years, Belmont was supporting a Southern white women's organization that was really vociferously, virulently racist, and only for um, giving the right to vote to white women. And at that, when she's interviewed, Belmont says, "Well." we'll just follow whatever laws the Southern states pass. So effectively black women, if they get disenfranchised like black men are in the South, you know, she's no longer interested in having the vote be for everyone. So I think um, those stories are really interesting because they help us to see what um, all of these groups of women were thinking and why they each wanted the right to vote. And then, Um, this sort of moment of possibility to form more coalition and then why some of that um, falls apart.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
3: Yeah. So disappointing, right? <laughs> it is. When we listen to these stories, you know, and I always think Alva Belmont's so interesting too, because she's from the South, you know, she's from an affluent yes. Southern family. So I always think it's interesting how she um, has the, you know, she certainly has the regional understanding of mm-hmm. the South and the North, because then she spent her adulthood in the North. No, she's yeah, and
1: she's definitely. so fascinating because when she writes to um, Kate Gordon, who is heading up this Southern white women's organization, um, she'd been out of the South for, you know, like 50 years or something. And she writes to her and says, "You know, as a fellow Southerner, you know, we never lose our Southern identity, and and I support you. And I'm so glad to see Southern women are organizing. So it's uh, very, very interesting how she plays that up. And it was very difficult for uh, Black suffragists in general in the movement. Of course, they're they're both included at times and and excluded at other times." Um, particularly at the national level, in the national organization. And then, of course, in the um, southern states, it was very difficult for them. And so they mostly work through Black women's organizations, through Black women's clubs. Um, And although they are certainly um, wealthier Black women who are giving to suffrage, they're not really giving to those big national organizations um, they're giving to their own women's clubs and supporting those clubs instead.
3: Yeah. So let's talk about clubs. So a woman's club, the Colony Club appears in several chapters in your book. What did you find out about women's clubs and other social organizations and their importance for philanthropy?
1: Um, well, I think that they're really key to the, um, that ability to fundraise, to find donors, right? So you have these communities of women uh, who are wealthy um, and Carrie Carrie Chapman-Catt and Susan B. Anthony, leaders of the national organization were very uh, intentional about using those organizations and clubs to find donors to the movement. So, they form what they call the society plan. And the society plan is to have suffragists join those clubs and then solicit the members and literally hand over the membership list as a mailing list to solicit. So there's nothing um, subtle (laughs) about this plan. I mean, it was really very explicit. We we need to find owners and this is how we're going to do it. And of course, women's clubs were new in this time period. Um, women, previous to that, had really organized more through churches and and religious organizations. Even the Women's Christian Temperance Union, you know, had a, a kind of religious aspect to it. But the women's clubs were really very secular, and they were. Uh, there was a social aspect to them. They were very social, um, and then many of them also had um, uh, activism and reform and they were, you know, building kindergartens and hospitals and things like that as well. Um, but, um, I, I think that there was a desire both to get the money as well as to try and involve, um, some of these wealthy women who had a lot of social capital, right. And a lot of, um, could garner publicity, right? If you got J.P. Morgan's daughter involved, you know, the New York Times would cover that. Um, If you went to the Colony Club and held a lunch there for working women, um, you know, that would make the news. Um, And so that was a really another important aspect of getting these women's clubs involved and getting um, wealthy women on board.
3: Yeah, so it's like it gives them legitimacy, right? They understood the connection as providing some legitimacy to the movement
1: by getting, yeah. some, you know. Yeah, absolutely. The name brand people involved. Exactly. And someone like Alva Belmont, I mean she, if she opened her mouth, the the newspaper was re- right there to interview her. They would report on it immediately. Yeah, um, you know Black women's clubs were also essential. Um, and this was really, as I said, for many Black women who didn't necessarily feel welcome or who weren't, you know, explicitly not welcome in some of the other state organizations and the national organization. Um, the Black women's clubs were essential. And there were some, um, you know, quite wealthy Black women donors to these organizations. Um, there's a woman in Chicago. Uh, Mary Richardson Jones, whose husband, she, she and her husband were early Chicago black settlers in the you know 1840s, 1850s, and her husband was a tailor and invested in real estate. When she he died in 1879, she inherited fifty thousand dollars, which was quite a bit of money at that time, and she really used her wealth to support um a bunch of black organizations and specifically women's organizations at the time the ywca in chicago was would not um uh, serve black people and so she was supporting the phyllis wheatley club which was essentially providing similar kinds of services for black women um and then she and some other um leader leaders uh black leaders in chicago Gave the money to form a uh, provident hospital and a nursing school because Black women were excluded from the nursing schools in the area. And so this way they could train at the hospital and then work at the hospital, and the hospital could treat Black patients. Um, so, like a lot of these other donors, she really sees all these connections between, um, you know, helping working women, helping. Um, expand education, access to education, women's organizations. And she is a suffragist. She she hosts um, some of the major suffragists when they come um, to Chicago. Uh, there's also, of course, Madam C.J. Walker, who was the hair care uh, products. Um, and she was very, very wealthy. Um, and she gave a lot of money to um, organizations like the Y, uh, also to several Black um, women who started schools, who were, most of them were club women, women like uh, Mary McLeod Bethune and Charlotte Hawkins Brown, and on the East Coast and the Southeast, and um, many of them started schools, and she gave fun, uh, quite generously to those schools as well. Um, so I think even these uh, black women donors who maybe weren't giving the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions that some of the white women were capable of giving. Um, they still had a culture of generosity, um, as the biographer of, of Madam C.J. Walker describes it. Um, and they gave consistently to support similar kinds of causes.
3: Yeah, the generosity and the awareness of the importance, right? That, yeah. that you know, this money can make a difference in the wider, in the wider scope of things. I think that's really fantastic to recognize. So the donations to women's colleges are also highlighted in the book. Can you tell us a bit about how women who gave generously to create the women's colleges?
1: Sure. So, um, in this time, um, before the civil war, there were really just one or two options for women to actually get a a bachelor's degree, a college degree. And so the rise in women's colleges and then some co-educational institutions after the Civil War is just absolutely essential for women to get access to education, which gives them access to the professions and which really marks them as um, capable of, of having the same capacity for intellect and rational thought as men. And so it really makes a huge difference in their ability to uh, fight for equality. Um, And so, for example, you have Sophia Smith, who is the founder of Smith College in Massachusetts. Um, And she was uh, determined that women should have the same quality education as men. And so she wanted Smith to have the same kind of rigorous um, requirements. And offerings as you know, the best men's colleges at the time, the, the Harvards and the Amhersts, which were all men. Um, and that was really essential, having these kinds of women's colleges, uh, the Seven Sisters, Vassar, um, Wellesley, Smith, these were were really important. Um, she said that they could right women's wrongs, you know, that, that they could really make a difference in the lives of women. Um, and she's, um, like Mrs. Frank Leslie, you know, she's not an activist. She's not giving speeches in favor of suffrage. She lives a very quiet life. She never marries. She's partly, uh, has a loss of hearing later in life. She's very religious, feels that, uh, it's very important for her to use her wealth for good. Um, but we do have some. You know, evidence that she and a couple of other college founders, um, you know, when you look at her book collection, what she read, she, you know, they sometimes would make notes in the margins. So those are the kinds of pieces of evidence that we're looking at to see what they were thinking before they then made this very generous donation in which she leaves the money for Smith College. Um, She very explicitly says, you know, that this is to make a difference in women's lives and, and right the wrongs. Um, someone like Ellen Scripps who founded um, Scripps College out in Los, uh, near Los Angeles um, was a little bit more of an activist. She was very active in the La Jolla Women's Club. She was an active suffragist, um, but even those like Sophia Smith who were not what we would consider to be typical women's rights activists, definitely um, thought that it was important um, to, to provide that access to higher education for women and how it would really fundamentally change their lives.
3: You know, it's so interesting too, how these colleges have persisted too, you know, even up until today, you know, that, uh, even though they've had their ups and downs in terms of enrollment, you know, and those of us in higher ed, you know, we know that the, we know, we know all the trials and tribulations of the enrollment cycles, but, that these women's colleges still make an enormous difference in women's lives even today. And I think that um, it shows the amazing impact that these generous donations have made through time, not just for the women in the past, but all the way up until today. It's really- um,
1: that's a great point.
3: Yeah, so reproductive freedom is still important today too and it's an important issue in your book. So how were wealthy women important to advancing the movement for birth control?
1: Um, So when uh, the birth control movement really started under Margaret Sanger in the 19 teens, um, she was very explicitly at that. This was before she dove uh, headfirst into eugenics. And so for the first, um, I'd say, maybe seven years of her activism, She was um, quite explicitly feminist and framed the need for birth control as a a woman's right to control her own body. Um, And she was surrounded by a group of wealthy women who shared that same um, impulse. And they really funded her directly. I mean, they they were a small group of women in New York, and they were giving her uh, paying for her rent and, and really enabling her to, to work for birth control. Um, and these were women who almost all of them were active suffragists. And I think that's one of the key points in the book as well, right? Is how many of these women show up in chapter after chapter because they all understood that, you know it wasn't just about getting the right to vote but the right to vote was a tool to improve women's lives, open up access to higher education, to professions, to reproductive rights, that all of these were really connected and you wouldn't have um, equality or full rights until you had all of these um, rights, social, economic, political power. Um, And so I think that's really important. One of her supporters was Catherine Dexter McCormick, who was giving, you know, small amounts really consistently for many, many years. Um, McCormick married Stanley McCormick, who was part of the McCormick um, Harvester family, McCormick International Harvester now. And her husband, unfortunately, had a mental illness and had a breakdown two years into their marriage. And so he was kind of kept in in a family home in Santa Barbara for decades until he died, um, at which point she inherited $35 million. And this is in the 1940s. So it, it's the equivalent of you know maybe 150 million today. Um, and so at that point, she began to look around and see what she had been giving small amounts to birth control, to the suffrage movement, you know, but what could she have a major impact in now? And so she decided to support the scientist and the um, physician who were working to develop a birth control pill. And so for 10 years, she basically wrote them checks every year and single-handedly supported their lab and their practice and their, you know, the development of the pill until it was um, approved by the FDA. And, and then after that, she was working hard to get it Um to be used around the world internationally in Europe. And she had a house in Switzerland. She was promoting it in Switzerland. She was promoting it, um, all over really. Uh, and so, and she writes about, uh, she also gave a lot of money to the medical school at Stanford for, um, women, physicians, women in the medical profession and women students. And she, she writes to someone at Stanford and, and kind of explains, you know, I've been involved in this at that point at the, the time of this is right before her death. She's 90 years old. And she says, I've been involved in, you know, fighting for women's rights for decades. And, you know, having legal rights, having the right to vote, and now having um, control over her body. She calls it the uh, bedroom position. Um, but, you know, having um, this sort of power and independence within the relationship, within the home, within the family, that personal is political, like she gets that very clearly. Uh, and so she sees how all of these are really connected. Um, and I think that's really important.
3: Oh, yeah. Uh, she's fascinating. Uh- you know, and I love how you examine suffrage, women's education and birth control as sort of the, you know, the three legged stool of of women's emancipation. It's fantastic. And so the book includes so many interesting, colorful women. Do you have a favorite story? There's so many fantastic stories. Do you have a favorite one or one that you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, there's a lot. Um, But I guess I would say there's one story I haven't told, which is that of when Mary Garrett really coerced um, Johns Hopkins Medical School into admitting women. Um, That's one of my favorite stories. And I'm sure it gives uh, fundraisers today palpitations because she was using control for what, you know, I personally would say was a good cause. Right. You know, giving them the money only if they would admit women on the same basis as men. But of course, you know, she was using her control and power as a donor. Um, but Johns Hopkins had uh, left the money for when he died for a college, a hospital and a medical school. And they had built the college and they had built the hospital, but they ran out of money to build the medical school. So they were looking for money and she decides to offer um, $100,000 and she gives about half of that herself and raises the rest of it through she forms these this big committee um, with branches in cities across the nation. And, and you know, we have the records of the amounts of money that women in Milwaukee gave women in Baltimore, you know, all across the country. Um, and the school really doesn't want to admit women. And so they say, well, it's actually going to cost us half a million dollars to build a medical school thinking, you know, they'll find the money elsewhere. She's never going to give them half a million dollars. Well, she does. Her father had been the owner of the B&O railroad. And when he died, he, she inherited uh, millions of dollars and she was not married. Um, She's partnered with uh, another woman, M. Carrie Thomas, and together they they run this medical school um, fund. And so she ends up giving, raising approximately one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and giving three hundred and fifty thousand dollars herself. And this is in the early eighteen nineties. So it's an enormous gift, and she she dangles it to the president of Johns Hopkins, and basically dares him to not accept it. And so. He huffs and puffs a little bit for a few weeks. And then the board of trustees finally votes to accept it and to open the medical school on the same basis to women and to men. So that, that was a great story.
3: Yeah, that is. That is a terrific story. Um, so what role do you think wealthy women can play today to continue to advance the issues that uh, remain important to women?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's essential that money is still needed. You know, for the same rights, for political rights, for reproductive rights, supporting women in labor, um, women who run for Congress disproportionately depend on donations from women in order to run for Congress. So, um, you know, that's a you know, now that we have the right to vote, right, getting women into office, um, and people like Melinda Gates are giving. Um, she gave a billion dollars really to advance women. Um, and she also connects the right to um, mm-hmm. reproductive rights, uh, work rights, right? And basically says if, if women can be economically independent, if they can earn their own money, they're really gonna change how society thinks about what women's roles are. And that's gonna be fundamental. So I think the need for all of this is, is still there. And I think one of the lessons we can take from these women is both, you know, to be inspired by the impact that they had and to see the potential for how we can continue to make change, and then also to be inspired to do better, right, and to be more inclusive and to be much more expansive in thinking about sexuality and race and gender identity and to to really fight for social justice and for human rights um, in ways that some of these women a hundred years ago failed to do.
3: Right, right. And, and on an international basis now too. You
1: yes, know, absolutely.
3: I think that that's one of the interesting things about uh, philanthropists like Melinda Gates is that she really, she has a global um, vision mm-hmm. of female emancipation and that that's kind of broader than just a national one. And uh, so it, it is, it's terrific. And, you know, when we look at things like congressional seats and women running for it, we're still only, women still only hold 25% of the Congress. And that's the high watermark, you know, that this mm-hmm. is only, you know, it's still, there's definitely still work to do. And so hopefully women will continue to be on the financial side of helping make that change happen. You know, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Do you have another project you're working on?
1: I'm just wrapping up a concise history of the suffrage movement. So it's going to come out from Rutledge Press and it is intended for college classrooms. So it's kind of a brief or concise history of the movement and it has primary sources in it. Um, So I think it'll really be a great tool for Continuing to teach about, uh, you know, a much more expansive and inclusive uh, vision of of the suffrage movement that um, uh, really um, goes back and forth between the national organizations. I highlight about half a dozen state efforts. So when you get down into the local level, you can really uh, particularly see what women of color are doing, sometimes better than you can see at the national level. Um, So I think uh, this history will be really helpful um, to a new generation. learning. Oh,
3: that sounds wonderful. Oh, I really look forward to reading that. I want to thank Joan Marie Johnson for joining me on the show today. Again, the name of the book is Funding Feminism. Moneyed Women, Philanthropy, and the Women's Movement, 1870 to 1967, published by University of North Carolina Press. Until next time on New Books in Women's History, this is Jane Semecka. Happy reading.